Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be uh, around a little bit. So Romans chapter 12 is a good place to put your finger. Uh, good morning. My name is Sam, and this is uh, one of the last standalone sermons we're going to do before we launch into um, what is our main series. Next week, we'll go into a, a really brief a vision series, kind of important couple Sundays to be at, just understanding who we are, what makes us unique as a church. Uh, and then we're going to begin Genesis, and we'll be in that for a while. Um, but we are today uh, talking about uh, this kind of theme of restoration, and any standalone sermons we have this year will be kind of smattered about between series. will probably be in the spirit of, of restoration, and the, the word restoration, the idea of restoration is, is really this picture of God having given us certain things, and sin in the world has have either perverted or, or caused us to ignore these things. And restoring it is, is really aligning it back to how God designed it and how God intends for it to be used. And so that's what we're talking about today in restoring the table. Um, for many of you, and uh, either last week or this week, it was the beginning of school. And I love the beginning of school. I taught high school for like 10 years, and I still to this day love going to the schools, I love orientation day, I love talking to teachers, I like schedules, I like all that stuff. It's weird, but it gives me cool tingles, and I love it. But as I was walking through this year, so I have a, a son who's a freshman, I've got a son in middle school, I have a daughter in elementary school, and, and then a couple little ones are going to be in their own thing someday. I was reminded, maybe for the first time in a long time, how fast life moves. And when you have kids and you watch old videos or you go to like, wow, you're a freshman now and you're going to be driving soon. It's, it just kind of shakes you to go, wow, things change really fast. And it seems like, especially with kids, um, you're in a constant state of perpetual change. In some uh, seasons faster than others, but you're always changing. And it takes but a blink of an eye for a child to go from throwing up to growing up. And it's like, wow, that was quick. Um, and in reality, the same thing happens with churches. And I've been reminded oftentimes that our church is uh, only two and a half years old, really. And so if you think about a two and a half year old, um, in truth, there's a world of difference between a two and a half month old and a two and a half year old. Like that's a, there's all kinds of changes, uh, but it's still young, it's still like, not able to do certain things, but certainly a two-and-a-half-year-old is different than a seven-year-old. And we can see that we are growing and we are changing, and, and that's okay. Things are going to continue to change, and every year things will be different. And it's not that it was better or worse, it just is, and, and typically it's, it's different and it's new, and we have to hopefully embrace that. Every new season that we have of mission here is going to be different than the last. And that means that really, right now, there are literally hundreds of things that we could do as a church. There's all kinds of stuff we can do, and that stuff isn't bad. And it would be different stuff than we did last year. But I want to hopefully today kind of pause for a moment and talk about the very few things, and today one thing that we must not do together, but be together always, every year, no matter what. It's talking about the character of who we are as a church. And that shouldn't change. The church, uh, if you didn't know, and I hope you remind yourself often of this because it's easy to forget, is more than an event on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night. It is much more than just a social club that does enjoyable, fun things. And it is even more than uh, an organization that is designed to serve the world and to meet some of the, the social justice issues of the world. And those are all good things. But according to the Bible, if we ask ourselves, what is the church and what does the Bible say the church is? The church is a gathering of disciples who have been saved by Jesus out of the world. And those same disciples have been adopted into the family of Jesus as they're in the world, and they are sent out into the world by Jesus to tell the world about Jesus. 
It's a lot of Jesus and a lot of world, I know. And we often talk about the world and the church and what the world thinks of the church and what the church is doing for the world and all those things. But if you look at the descriptions that the Bible uses for the church, it's described as the body of Christ. It's described as the household of God. It's even described as the family of God. See, the Bible uses language that defines the church less by what they do and more by who they are in relationship to one another, to each other. So there are many commands that we could focus on, and I'm sure that there are sermons and and different times that we will focus on these things, where we're commanded to serve the poor, and we're commanded to feed the hungry, and commanded to preach the gospel. But did you know that there are over 50 commands about how we're supposed to relate to one another? And really, without being the church, though many Christians individually try, without being the church together, it is relatively impossible to obey these commands. The Bible commands us to pray for one another, to rejoice with one another, to serve one another, to devote yourselves to one another, to share the same mind with one another, to accept one another, to bear one another's burdens, to greet one another, to instruct one another, to comfort one another, to forgive one another, to work with one another, to admonish one another, to encourage one another, to confess to one another, to agree with one another, to be hospitable to one another, to fellowship with one another, to weep with one another, to welcome one another. And that's only 20. That's how the Bible describes us. This one-anotherness. And all of these commands, if we just kind of pack them all into one big command, it really is summarized by love one another. In John 13, which is one of my favorite passages in the Gospel of John, it's Jesus washing the feet of His disciples. And this is the night that Jesus would be betrayed, the night He would be arrested and sentenced to die by an illegal court. But one of the last things He told His disciples was this, in verse 34 of chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people, in the Greek that means all people, by this love, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I'm always intrigued by what Jesus doesn't say. They will know you're my disciples by how you serve the world. It's good to do that. But Jesus puts things in priority and says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. He commanded us to love one another. He commanded us. This isn't suggestion. This isn't good advice. This is a command. We are to love one another and we all have to come face to face with the Lord in the quietness of our own heart and go, okay, what does does obeying this command look like? According to Jesus, it's such an important command because it is the identifying mark of a disciple. And more than that, it seems like it's the greatest tool for making disciples. Obedience to this command, I believe, extends beyond random acts of kindness or really sentimental feelings or intentions towards one another. It requires a Christ-like sacrifice. That's what Jesus says. Love as I have loved. Christ-like sacrifice means it's going to hurt. It means that what I preach to you today, 99% of you, dare I say a hundred, are not going to like it. Who likes crucifixion? 
No one raises their hand. This is the Christ-like sacrifice we're talking about. It's costly. Glorious, but costly. In writing from one of the most antagonistic and unloving churches, Corinth. So, Paul is sitting in Corinth, the church he has written letters to to rebuke them for their lack of love, yet they claim to be very spiritual. He writes to the Romans from this city, and he tells them to love one another. Romans chapter 12, he tells them to love one another and to not be lazy or passive in doing so, but to pursue love in very concrete and intentional ways. He says this, Chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. I love this next part. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We are commanded to practice hospitality. Now, when I say the word hospitality, it's a very old word. It's an uncommon word today. I don't think we use that. I think if you're pressed to say, what does it mean, you would struggle. So without boring you with Greek and all that stuff, let me just give you a very simple definition that that we'll use for for our time and our purposes. Hospitality, when I speak about it, means this. It is graciously, that's important, grace is an incredibly loaded word. Grace is doing something that is undeserved. So you're not doing something or showing someone grace because they've earned it or deserved it. So it's graciously receiving a stranger, another weird word, when you think of stranger, you think of hitchhiker. I'm not talking about hitchhiker, though that certainly could work. Talk about those people that are strange too. I don't mean weird. That could work as well. I mean unfamiliar to you. You don't know them. They're not your best friends. They're not familiar. So graciously receiving a stranger as family. Graciously receiving a stranger as family. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time I did that? We are commanded to do that. Now, historically, if we talk about the early church, we see all the letters written to the early church. Historically, the early church was characterized by hospitality. And if you think about it, it makes some sense because at that time, the church didn't have much. All they had was one another. That's it. I wonder how much uh, the complexity and the busyness of our lives has actually prevented us and hindered us from just being simply biblical. But at that time, the church had nothing but one another. They didn't have what we would consider church today, big buildings. They didn't have creative discipleship programs. They didn't have uh, polished services with amazing worship and, and fellowship and all those things that we would think this goes into a church gathering. In fact, the churches gathered in homes for the most part where families who loved Jesus employed the greatest tool that He gave them. Their table. Their table. It's amazing how many excuses we use in terms of what we don't do for the Lord because of what we don't have. They use their table. And it was in their homes, at their tables, where brothers and sisters in the Lord shared food, shared drink, shared their lives, and shared their faith with strangers. 
The table is where strangers turned into guests. And in time, guests turned into friends, and in time, friends turned into family members. That's how it worked. The early church, I think, had a real genuine sense of what it meant to love as the household of God. That they would invite others into their table to be in their home and to love them as the family of God. In his book, very short book, you should you'd be encouraged to get it, called The Hospitality Commands. Alexander Strauch writes this, I don't think that most Christians today understand how essential hospitality is to fanning the flames of love and strengthening the Christian family. Hospitality fleshes out love in a uniquely personal and sacrificial way. Through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions, right? I've defined hospitality for you. Graciously receiving a stranger as family. And he says, hospitality is where we share our most prized possessions. Like what? We share our family. We share our home, our finances, our food, our privacy, our time. Indeed, we share our lives. And so hospitality is always costly. Through the ministry of hospitality, we provide friendship and acceptance and fellowship and refreshment and comfort and love in one of the richest and deepest ways possible for humans to understand. And unless we open the doors of our homes to one another, the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of brothers and sisters who love one another is theory. If we are called the church, we gather here and we say, I believe by our very presence, we love one another. If we don't actually live that out in tangible ways, like hospitality, we are liars. And there are many in here who demonstrate great hospitality and live out the love that Jesus has for them by loving others in this way. But I would argue that most of us do not. For most of my life prior to being a pastor, I did not. I valued my privacy and my time and my food more than I valued having anyone in my home who was going to destroy it. God had to make me a pastor in order for me to be obedient because it's the qualification of an elder. But I would say you, or tell you, and I will share with you that obedience did lead to joy, not duty. The truth is, we all need this kind of love. And I think most of us would agree with that. But I'll also argue that all of us need to love like this. I believe obedience to this command, this command was given and designed by God to satisfy our need for love and our need to love. And even if you don't feel the need to be loved, I know many are in here and you do have the legal defense team rushing to your brain right now with all the excuses as why this is not possible for the life you have. And one of those excuses is like, well, I don't, I don't need this. I don't have that kind of need. I don't have that kind of hole. I'm filled up. Fantastic for you, lovey-dovey. But even if you don't feel the need to be loved, guess what? You are still commanded to love like this. I don't really care how you feel, and neither does the Bible. The question we all have to ask ourselves, and I'll have several questions throughout this, is how and where and when are we intending to obey this command? Because it certainly looks different. But I am very confident we know the difference between obedience and disobedience. And if you ask any parent, they know. The act of inviting someone into your home, I believe, satisfies the deepest needs that others have but also the deepest needs that you have. Some of those deepest needs are, are very clear, and I'll just talk about a couple. 
I believe that people need to be loved unconditionally. See, everyone wants to feel welcome and be accepted for who they are. Doesn't matter who you are, I believe you have that need even if you're not able to articulate it. They want to be loved for who they are. The fact that we have a billion self-help books trying to tell people who they are, it's a representative of a search. People really represent the fact they're never affirmed on who they are. Most people, I believe, enter a church or who enter a church, enter feeling very alone and very insecure. And the truth is, an unloving church only affirms the lies that that person wrongly believes, that they are strange, unwanted, and out of place. And the church is supposed to be the last place where that's like. I can't tell you, and it's not a ton, but I still get cards that say, no one welcomed me today. This is not an admonishment on the church. Writing something like that can be fully about that person, but it can be about the church. I didn't feel welcome. I didn't feel warm. I, I, no one even said hi to me. And you just think about the church as the household of God. If someone came into your house, you would never ignore them. It would be weird. It would be rude. Guy standing there like, who are you? Just walking by. Sorry, I'm making dinner. Did you need something? Right? When people aren't invited, when not embraced, especially those who are new, they're coming into a house they've not been to, they already feel awkward. They already feel out of place. If you don't say anything, you're like, affirm. Weird, awkward. I don't want to be characterized by a church like that. As a church like that, I should say. We want those people to feel welcome. You have to remember, for those who are not very new here, there was a time when you were. We forget that. We get our little group of friends, and we look forward to seeing them on Sunday, and we ignore the people that are there. And what happens in churches, and people will say, oh, this happened to you, you put in a little 60 seconds of awkwardness to force people to say hi to each other. And at some level, when you have to do that, you failed as a church. It's true. So we took it away. To be a help. An encouragement. Well, I don't have my 60 seconds of awkwardness, so I can't say hi to nobody. It's not planned. Everyone needs to feel, I believe, loved unconditionally. And the loving church pursues those people. And I don't mean just on a Sunday morning. I mean wherever you are. Hospitality is much more than a friendly greeting, though there is something very beautiful, very gospel-centered about initiating contact and going out of your way to say hello or welcome someone that you do not know. You will never underestimate the value of that simple thing. And you'll never or should never underestimate the value of when someone who is part of this family is absent for a while and they return after maybe a few weeks and go, hey man, where have you been? I noticed you were gone. I've been here since the beginning, right? I was gone for three weeks. I typically don't take vacation in big chunks like that. But I was gone for three weeks. And when I came back, maybe it's because I'm the pastor, but they said, man, it's good to see you. It felt good. I didn't think to myself, you're just saying that, right? I was like, thank you. It felt good to be missed. And that's the experience that everyone should have. Because people are pursuing one another and knowing one another and aware of one another. It communicates much more than just um, I'm being obedient to being hospitable. It does communicate a church that loves unconditionally. That simple welcome, I believe, is an acknowledgement that says I see you important. And 
when you begin to invite someone into your home, to take it to like the next level of intimate connection with somebody, that invitation, even if they don't receive it and go, I can't, is I accept you as an equal. You're valuable. And when they do and you sit down with a meal, that meal is a grace that says, I love you as family. One writer put it this way, the ability to acknowledge and accept people is a rare gift that few of us possess and all of us need. Most of us forget names once we hear them and overlook people once we meet them. We pay attention to the people we already know or to the ones that we want to know. The few powerful, popular, witty, richy, successful people attract the biggest followings even at church and the quiet, the elderly, the odd, the ordinary, the undesirable are often left alone like the lepers of Jesus' day. Now, my expectation or, or what typically happens after you preach a sermon like this, everyone starts saying hi to everybody. And you're tempted to go, oh, I'm the leper, thanks. That's why you're saying hi to me. Let me give you a little, little like, hint. If you just accept and believe that you are the leper, and you're talking to lepers, you'll have the right mentality. We're all weird. We're all strangers. We're all goofballs. Let's be honest. If we weren't gathered here together as a church, most of us probably would not be friends. Because we're all different. And that's the glorious beauty of the church. And so, man, you're weird, but you're my brother. That's unconditional love. People also need to be loved intentionally and we need to be love, loving or people need to be loved unconditionally but also intentionally. And, and sometimes that means the invitation is enough. Sometimes just the invitation is all that we need to feel accepted. But sometimes we need to be loved in a particular way. And I think that the invitation of bringing someone and receiving them into your home is the way to truly love someone in the way that they need. And that's because you're close enough to learn. As we fellowship with one another at the tables, what happens is we begin to hear one another's stories. If you're good at asking questions, I find that people are really bad at asking questions and really good at talking about themselves. So as you invite someone into your home, your job is to ask them questions. Tell me where you grew up. They're not real like super creative questions. What do you do for a living? You have siblings? How'd you guys meet? How'd you find your way to this church? Tell me how Jesus saved you. I mean, you learn someone's story. You learn what's going on in their lives. The good, the bad, the ugly. That is something, quite honestly, that's pretty difficult to do on a Sunday morning. You don't have time to hear a story. But as you sit at the table and you listen to story, you start to discern what the heart actually needs, whether it be encouragement or comfort or even maybe some admonishment. A little kick in the butt. The table is, I think, the ideal place to obey all the one another commands. <clears throat> the table is where I believe we can most easily rejoice with one another we can weep with one another. We can bear with one another. We can pray with one another. The table, I believe, is where we come to learn and meet the needs of strangers, of brothers, of sisters. And the more I've spent time with people, which has been a lot in the last 10 years, much more than the previous 30 years, I've learn that sometimes people just need recognition for the hard work that they're doing. Others need some encouragement to just press on and keep going. Some need comfort when they've lost something or someone. Some need hope 
that they've lost a job or a dream that they had is fading. And some just need a good meal and a good laugh. A lot of people need a good laugh. My hope is if you come to our house, you just have a good laugh and a good meal. Not as good as some of you because you all can cook. But we might have some crock pot cooking for you. I don't know what it will be. And there are those times when you get to know people that the table is the best place to give a loving admonishment. To tell them to turn from their sin and won't satisfy and to love Jesus. A time to, for those who come to the table with everything together, say, you remember the gospel. Or for the time for those who are despairing and beating the snot of themselves because they think they're not good enough. It's a time to share the gospel. That's where you love intentionally. It's very difficult to do that in large gatherings. But the table is your home. The table is intimate. The table is powerful. The last thing I think people need is not to be just loved conditionally and intentionally, but also missionally. I believe that table is actually the best pulpit we have. The table is one of the most powerful tools for evangelism. And if Evangelism is a taboo word to you. Let me remind you that the primary reason if you are a Christian, you are on this planet right now and that God is not taking you home is to make disciples. It's to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ, His love and forgiveness on the cross, and His resurrection and promised new life. That is what your role is. That is why God did not take you away when you were saved. The table, I believe, is... The ideal place for that. We're always asking ourselves, oh, well, how do I, I share the gospel? And how do I tell my coworkers about the gospel? And I like, let me just make it easy for you. You got a pulpit sitting in your kitchen or dining room. And I dare say you may not have to say anything because you are living out the gospel by loving someone graciously abundantly, richly, and if they ever dare ask, why would you ever do this? You simply can respond because Jesus loved me. The same way. What do you want? Why are you doing this? I don't want anything. I just want to show you how much I'm loved. As a Christian, your home, your beautiful home, your wonderful home, your Pinterest home, that home that you love, it ain't yours. Neither is your food, that wonderful food. Neither is your time. It's all His. Every bit of it. And we need to start thinking less like owners and more like stewards. What am I doing with His stuff? What am I doing with His home and His money and His food and His time? Have you considered how you can use your home not to just bless, but also maybe preach as you bless? And yes, you may have the opportunity to speak Jesus and to proclaim the Gospel, and I hope that you do, but I think that you can still speak, if you will, or proclaim His love simply by loving someone at your table. Without question, we struggle except for a few exceptions whom we can all name because they're like evangelists to the core, inside and out, talk about Jesus at every breath. We know who you are. You're awesome. We wish we were like you. But most of us struggle sharing our faith. At least when we're out in the world. But in our homes, in our homes, our place, our stuff, our smells. Come on. You know, we all got the home smell. Home is where we invite people to, to belong in hopes of them believing. That's where it's safe. That's where it's easy. Now, this next paragraph here I titled The Curse of Hospitality. And for some of you, you want to yell amen right now. 
right? Like, it is a curse. This is, you're telling me to do this? I'm telling you to do nothing. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And some of us are incredibly gifted at hospitality. Uh, You just, by gifted, here's what I mean. There's ways you can take tests and stuff, and I don't really like those. Here's how I figure out gifting. To fill you up, you're good at it, it pours energy into you, you pursue it naturally. Like There's people that are gifted at hospitality. They have people in their home, they give them like king's feasts, right? And they're just, like, they think of everything and you leave there feeling just fat and full and fellowshipped up. You're just like, oh, they're, <gasps> we're not like them at all. But they're awesome, right? There are people like that. Then there's the rest of us. And the rest of us struggle being hospitable to brothers and sisters and neighbors. And we have our reasons, I'm sure, but we struggle with obedience. And I just want to, like, help you. And that's this. That's normal. That's normal. Want me to prove it? All right, I will. It's going to be so good. All right, 1 Peter chapter 4. So Peter, he's old and dead, right? He's he's a dead guy a long time ago, head of the church, He's talking to the early church, early, early church, and he's writing a letter. And here's what he writes. 1 Peter 4, 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Right? He puts that as primary. Love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We love that verse, right? That's a great verse. Go to the next one. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now here's how I read that verse. Like some read that verse and go, quit complaining. Praise God, let's pray. Right? No. That's not how I read it. Here's how I read it. The early church was grumbling about hospitality. Because hospitality feels really hard at times. And it has since the beginning. We all struggle with it. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. A few of you don't. Right? But we grumble. Because it's hard. In our home, we have defined obedience as this. Following or obeying, I should say, the first time without complaint, without arguing, without delay. Obeying first time without complaint, arguing, or delay. Now, when my, I can tell then what obedience and disobedience is. We talk about this often, almost daily. Why? Because when I give commands, whatever it might be, there is the temptation to delay or argue or complain or pretend like you didn't hear Dad say it seven times, right? And do you think when I give a command, like they have a choice to, like they feel like, I don't like this, and they're getting better, some days better than others? of not complaining, but they still feel like complaining. This is not about feelings. This is not about what we feel. This is about what honors God because what He's asked us to do. So the question is, how are we obeying this command from the Lord? Are, are we doing it first? They hear like, okay, show hospitality without grumbling. Let your love be genuine. Show hospitality to go, I am going home and showing some hospitality. Or you feel yourself wanting to complain or argue. That's that's only speaking to the gifted people with hospitality. I don't have time. I don't have the money. Like, start making excuses. Or I'll do it. I will do it after this. It's a really hard season right now. We like the word season a lot. You notice that? We usually describe everything. It's a really difficult season. Like, I'm in a good season. Like, whatever, right? So I just don't buy it. And I use it too, and I'm condemning myself in that. But we use that to delay. Oh, it's just not the season for that. For obedience? Okay, I'll let the Lord know that. It's not the season for obedience, Lord. Sorry, we'll wait the next season. Is that how we approach His commands? And I, again, this is between you and the Lord. I'm not trying to like, I'm not keeping track like, well... The Thompsons weren't really hospitable this week. You know, like, it's not like that. I don't know. I don't know who's hospitable here and who's not. But I do know what the Bible says. And it brings me under its conviction as well. 
You think just because I'm the like, did you know I'm the pastor? And then, and then the elder requirements it's be hospitable. Don't have that for you. So I am doubly convicted. We we make all kinds of very good sounding excuses to justify our disobedience. The three most common, pretty obvious. We can't sacrifice our time. We can't sacrifice our money. We can't sacrifice our privacy. I just can't. And the crazy thing is, or perhaps the sad thing is, that we fill our schedules with a lot of good things that God doesn't command us to. And we make them more important than the things that He does. We fill this calendar full and then we can't fit in the things He actually has commanded us to do. And we feel okay about that. We fear the cost of a meal. We fear the cost of things getting broken. We protect our house like we're a king being attacked by the barbarian horde. I can't invite that family over there like six kids. They will destroy everything. I've got these really nice porcelain dolls that are really low and they'll grab them. We'll put them away. Goodness. I guarantee you invite anybody in this church, you're going to have some kids coming over. Better get some crayons and paper out or it's going to be on the walls. <laughs> Here's the truth is that we don't love people like Christ has loved us. We have taken our eyes off of the riches of Jesus' love. We are not enamored by, awed by, blown away by the level of grace that He has shown us a stranger. The Bible calls us that. And what did Jesus do? He poured out everything He had and loved us as family. Alexander Strouch again wrote this, at the heart we're all selfish. And selfishness is the single greatest enemy to hospitality. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to share our privacy or time with others. We're consumed by our personal comforts. We want to be free to go about our business without interference or concern for other people's needs. We don't want responsibility and the work that hospitality entails. We are greedy. We don't want to share our food, our home, or money. We're afraid we'll be used or that our property will be damaged. All of these attitudes are selfish, and selfishness is sin. It's the opposite of love. It's the mark of the unregenerate life. It's contrary to hospitality, and it's totally opposed to everything Christ taught and lived. And the thing about it is, we call it the curse of hospitality because when the word hospitality for most of us comes up, that's all we can think about is the curse. All we can think about is the pain and the, and the suffering. We can't possibly think about blessing. I say, you know what? The Bible says, you guys, we're supposed to be hospitable. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to invite each other into our homes and listen and love and care for. And we, okay, fine. I'll suffer like Jesus. I'll bear my cross of hospitality. And you just walk like this. Hi, you're supposed to come over. I've got food for you. And you just sort of, just sad sack, woeful, just ugh, right? I'll do it. It's a curse. Curse of being a Christian. It's amazing how often things like that, commands of the Lord, we are convinced will not bring joy. We realize God is a Father who loves us and only wants His best for us. And so therefore, the things He commands are designed to not just bring Him glory, but us joy. Like how many times have you told your child to do something, and you're like, okay, look at this is for the best, and they go, mm-hmm. yeah, right. This is a horrible idea. And you know it's going to bless them. You know it's for their good. We only see the costs when in truth, Hebrews 13 tells us there's serious blessing involved. Let me read this verse to you, which maybe you've never read before or you've heard it in really weird ways. Hebrews 13 says this, let brotherly love continue. Again, a lot of love in the Bible. Hear that? Brotherly love. 
amongst the family of the church. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And I know a lot of you are like, wait, 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 wait. Entertaining angels? Right? I know, you probably never had this experience, but I have. Every now and then, I'll be driving, you'll see like a homeless guy, and I'm like two lanes away turning, so I really can't, you know, help out, of course. And so, I always imagine maybe like, is that an angel? Is that maybe an angel? And I'm totally like failing some like test here or something. You know, I'm expecting to turn and see like a little wing flip out. I'm like, ah, I knew it. Dang it. It's possible, I guess, if you that angels could be among us and you invite someone over and they're an angel and that's possible. Bible says that has happened and that's what Hebrews is about. It's a very historical book that points back to the Old Testament and Really what I think it's doing here is um, referring to the blessings that men like Abraham and Gideon, he was in Judges, that they had when they did entertain angels. They didn't know they were angels, but because of the encounter they had and the hospitality that they shared, they experienced great blessing, great reward. The experience was joy-filling, God-glorifying, reward-inducing. It was awesome. We only count the cost. Think about the blessing. The blessing, as Jesus says, that comes from giving rather than receiving. Like, do you believe Him? The blessing that comes from teaching your children. Letting them see what it looks like to, to love. And for them to start asking, like, Hey, who are we having over this week? For them to actually begin to enjoy people. I grew up, it felt like pretty isolated from everybody except our family. We had our family time. And so hospitality was like a foreign thing to me as I got older. I don't want it to be, I want it to be a normal rhythm for my kids to bless others and bring them into our home and love on them. The blessing that comes from helping heal someone's loneliness or their suffering. Or catch this one. The blessing of being healed from someone else's suffering. When you bring someone to their home and they share the brokenness that's going on in their life, and immediately not only is your own life put in perspective, but you give glory to God because of A, maybe how you're able to minister, or B, how they're ministering to you. Like, I trust God even though I'm really suffering right now. You learn that at the table! Or the joy and the blessing that simply comes from making the kingdom of God tangible. Making it real. And I think that perhaps loving at the table like that is more real than preaching a sermon like this. More tangible. couple stories I want to close with. I asked, I don't know if I, I preached something like this a couple years ago, or last, I don't remember where, and I asked uh, people in our church for some stories. These are stories from people in our church. They've, you've heard them before if you heard the sermon before. But I, I was reading these again, and they were so encouraging. I wanted to encourage you. <clears throat> Story one, we were a newly married couple in a new town looking for a new church with a new baby, 19 and 22. An older couple greeted us and told us about the nursery, which we turned down, showed us to the cry room, sat with us and our little ones, and invited us into their home afterwards. It didn't seem strange or weird. Uncommon, yes. Their home wasn't perfect. Dishes in the sink. (gasps) Papers on the counter. And four preschoolers in a small space. But... You could tell they had purpose to have hospitality should the Lord allow. A porter crib was set up. A freezer meal was defrosting on the counter. Freezer meal? Pull out that lasagna and let it thaw, baby. Even though they were easily 15 years our senior and we didn't have much in common, they welcomed us 
And we began a journey at that church where my husband rededicated his life to Christ and I became a believer. It was powerful. Second story, David was the single guy that invited our family of ten, it says at the time. I don't know if that's right, but another family of seven into his one-bedroom apartment up at the top of a high-rise for some simple yet tasty fish tacos. Okay, single dude. One-bedroom apartment. A lot of excuses for your 1,200-square-foot home just went out the window. Love it! We still talk about this story because it was truly timely and heartwarming for us. It literally refreshed us out of a season of discouragement and restored our faith in the church at the time. I remember being super curious, riding the elevator up to his place. I remember mismatched dishes, a lot of scramble to find utensils, a bachelor atmosphere in cramped quarters, yes, but in the fondest of ways. I remember Dave's grace in letting the little kids frolic throughout the apartment, even getting his gun collection out to show it off. <laughs> Mistake number one. <laughs> but mostly the really good stories and laughs we had sitting in a circle in his carpeted living room on the floor eating tacos with him and this other couple. It flew in the face of all the excuses we faced. And then lastly, and very meaningful to me and to many here, uh, Dave and Debbie Henry welcomed us into our homes and their lives and my wife and I were blessed to know them. And Debbie was an absolute gem and one of a kind. And she gave my wife and I so much grace and love, even while she was passing from this life. Debbie had cancer at the time this, this happened. Messy house. Small apartment. Sickness. What's your excuse? What's mine? All pragmatic reasons aside, at some point, we have to honestly say that our refusal to practice hospitality evidences some kind of pride or unbelief. And the question for all of us, and it's the only question that we can ask before the Lord, is that at what point is my lack of hospitality, hospitality sinful? At what point? I'm convinced that a pursuit of hospitality evidences a very deep belief in the gospel. And I recognize I have to be very careful here because um, the gospel doesn't motivate out of guilt or shame or fear. And you can listen to sermons like this and leave guilty or ashamed or fear and going, i got to do this so that. And that's not what I want. And it's difficult sometimes to walk that line. The Gospel doesn't motivate out of guilt or shame or fear, but the Gospel does motivate. We can very easily, because our flesh is like this, become motivated, and you can hear me trying to motivate you for the wrong reasons like, you're going to be accepted by God if you do this, or accepted by people. God is not going to love you anymore if you are hospitable. He won't. He already loves you immensely. More than you could ever measure. And I believe that He wants us to experience the joy that comes from hospitality. And He wants us to do it motivated out of the love of Jesus for Jesus. Not even out of a love for one another first. The love for one another only comes from experiencing how much love God has for you. You the stranger. You the weirdo. You the sinner. You the ugly freako. And He said, I'm going to love you like family. And I'm going to make a feast for you that is immeasurable in comparison. 
Matthew 25 reminds us of our motivation. It says, as Jesus is telling this parable, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. To their responses, when did we see this? When did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? And the king said, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Our hospitality is not primarily for you or even for one another. It is for Jesus. It is our response to the one who already became hungry and naked and imprisoned and killed for us. It is the means in a very tangible way where we live out our conviction that we are loved graciously and to reveal to others and display to others that you are loved graciously like family in Christ. You need bring nothing. Everything is set up for you. Just feast. That's what Jesus did for us. You realize that, right? He was like the ultimate salvation potluck. And he's like, don't bring anything. And you try, he's like, no, 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 stop bringing stuff. It's my feast. I'm just here to bless you and love you, but I really should probably do something. No, don't do anything. I will throw it away. Because compared to the feast I have, it's garbage. Just embrace it and feast on it. So my question for all of us is this, and I ask myself this as well. Will you invite Jesus to your table by inviting a stranger to your table? Everyone needs that kind of love. Whether you're single or married, families, widows, new believers, old believers, hurting people, fringe people, whatever. And I believe everyone needs to love this way, whether you're one of those categories as well. I will commend not only pastors, but particularly older men and women. You are called to lead in this way in our church. You are called to set the example for those who are younger. We must be the example of hospitality so that it grows and we become characterized as a church that truly loves. What I hope for our church, honestly, is that when people talk about Restoration Road, they go, dude, those people preach Jesus and they love like Jesus. That's it. I don't care if we have a building. I don't care if we got a great Awana program. I don't care if we have awesome music. That we talk about Jesus, but we do more than talk about Jesus. We love like Jesus has loved us. You don't have to have a big house. You don't have to have a big food budget. You don't have to prepare a big meal. You don't have to have a big clean. It's okay. It could be a little messy. Don't need to dust. You don't have to even have a big plan because you have Big God, and all you need is a little faith. A little faith. As we enter this season, we are starting our road groups. They're all listed back there, and I believe this is the first place where we can demonstrate this kind of hospitality. And we'll call the leaders to do that, and our hope is as you come into this gathering, as you come into those little gatherings, and then your own family gatherings, we become characterized as a church that truly knows and lives out the love of Jesus. That's my hope when we start road groups. Is like, let me remind you what it's about. It's not about getting really a lot of ton of knowledge about Jesus. It's not primarily about serving for Jesus. It's really primarily loving one another as Jesus called us to do in John 13. That's where it starts. And we celebrate, we're reminded of the feast that Jesus made for us that we were invited to and he said, bring nothing. 
My blood was shed for you. You don't need to bring drink. My body is broken for you. You don't need to bring bread. I bring it all. I fill you all. And I send you out full so that you can help others experience the same. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. That you sent your Son to die for us, knowing how broken, rebellious, and disobedient we are and that we would be. And yet knowing that, knowing that you demonstrated your love for us while we're sinners, you died for us. Thank you for having loved us graciously on the cross and thank you for continuing to love us graciously even now. I pray that our church will hear this sermon and hear your words and not be filled with guilt or shame, but excitement and joy for what you can do through them. That you will help us as we dwell in the love that you have for us in your Son. You will help us to reveal that love to other people at our table. Make us a people who are inviting and initiating with others. Make us a people who are loving towards others, who want to bless others as much as we've been blessed. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. It is in the name of you, our Lord, our Savior, whom we pray returns quickly that we pray. Amen.